What's going on, church? How you doing? My name is uh, Joe Salant. I'm a Christian apologist and uh, attendee, uh, um, thankful member of this church, uh, Godspeed Calvary Chapel. What's up with that victory for Rob McCoy? Councilman? Councilman Rob McCoy. What's up with that? Yeah. Hard to find a, uh, uh, a, a better example of standing for Christ in the public square. Our pastor uh, found a way as a right-wing evangelical Christian to receive a seat of government power in one of the most liberal states, I mean, one of the most liberal places in, the, in, in this side of the world, yet people still recognize truth. They recognize somebody who's real. And uh, our pastor, Rob McCoy, um, he appealed. He spoke right to the people. He had numerous coffees. He told them the issues at hand. And character, I'll, I'll, I'll make the case, look, everybody knows inside what, what character, character is the most important thing. I mean, people want somebody who does what they say they're going to do for a reason. Justice, righteousness, these concepts, though they're belittled in society today and taught that they're arcane in society today, it, in the depth of the human heart, that's what resonates. And so Rob was an embodiment of the Christian message as he ran for this seat. And he got elected, and it's just such an awesome uh, uh, thing for us to be able to share in that and stand behind him for that. So um, today we're going to be starting our first lesson in a four-week series on Christian apologetics. All right? Uh, Does everyone know what Christian apologetics are? Raise your hand if you do not know what apologetics is. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) Okay, cool. Okay, all right. All right, cool. Um, what apologetics is, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cut right to it. In 1 Peter 3.15, 1 Peter 3.15, and we're going to be going there later too as well, um, the Word of God says, the Apostle Peter says, but sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for the hope that rests in us, and do so with gentleness and respect. That word defense in the Greek is apologia, and that's where we get our term apologetics. And it is a lost art. It is a pretty much a lost part of the Christian formation, a lost part of discipleship in the American church uh, since the mid-1800s, and we're going to be discussing that, though it's starting to come back today, Christian apologetics. You're supposed to be able to make a reasoned defense a reasoned defense. We're supposed to be able to take ideas that don't line up with the Christian worldview and confront those ideas with truth. Let me ask you a question. Who is, out of all the groups and categories of, of, of teachers and intellectuals in the world, who's the final arbiter of truth? Who is supposed to be? Who are the people of truth? Who are the people of truth? Who determines it? Well, yeah, Christians. Jesus, if Jesus is representative of ultimate reality, if Jesus is God's word spoken to the human race, if God indeed, if the God of the Bible indeed undergirds, stands behind reality, then who are the people that communicate wisdom, truth, and knowledge to the world. His followers. Is that the way the church is looked at in America today? No. Whose fault is that? 
That's our fault. We take responsibility, and that's such a precious thing to be able to do, that we do that. Um, A lot of sectors of Christianity in the American church, though it is getting better, would actually take that argument that I just presented to you and say, well, no, uh, you know, academia and all that separate, it's evil. Their identity of knowledge is kind of evil. Science is bad when it, con- when it contradicts the word of God. And all we need to do is stand on the word of God. And, and that's secular and this is sacred. That's the attitude that a lot in the church take today. And how are you supposed to affect culture if you're cloistered off into your little sacred corner? So the first step is to, like, like we just did just now, it, would, it was resonating in this room. That's our fault. That's our bad. So we acknowledge the corporate sin of the church in not being able to engage the culture intellectually. And we're going to look at the history of that and how that happened today and how Christian apologetics can be a main part of the solution in recovering the life of the mind for the church and influencing for Jesus in the public square. Jesus doesn't reside in this building. Jesus doesn't, it's not like you come to church, there's Jesus, then you go to public school or you go to some government building or you go to court or you go to the mall and then Jesus is not there. Jesus is just as much everywhere. As a matter of fact, Jesus wants us to be more church there than here. And there used to be a Christian consensus in our society. Um, All of the main, the major older universities, um, and, and, and all, all of the areas in academia in our country uh, were founded because of the Judeo-Christian worldview, and most of them were committed strongly to the Christian faith. Okay, there was a Christian consensus. Though not everybody was Christian per se, it was the thing to do, it was the identity to have if you considered yourself an intellectual, you gave homage, you gave respect at least to the Judeo-Christian worldview, Christianity in specific, in the United States of America and, the, and most of the developed Western world, you had to, you had to give homage to Christianity being uh, a, a high-level intellectual worldview, at least, if not the only worldview that's acceptable. What happened? What happened? Um, we receded. We, we took our responsibility as the church, and through a series of events that we're going to discuss... It, we ceased being able to combat certain challenges as they, ero- as they arose. And so whereas once Christianity was held up as a, um, as a standard, now Christianity is mocked as an ancient, arcane way of thinking that is actually labeled with bigotry, intolerance, in, in a society today that is just unmoored from its foundations. You know, I was at a, uh, um, a school board meet, meeting recently and uh, with actually, I think a good 30 members of this church showed up. That's, I love this church. Uh, and, and it was on the bathroom bill. And they were discussing implementation of the bathroom bill. And um, I was there, uh, Zach was there, uh, John Mink was there. We, we spoke, but about 30 people were there. And as I was speaking, I get, you get three minutes. As I was speaking, like the first minute I was able to 
communicate clearly. And then the, the last two minutes, I was just overcome with kind of emotion. I realized where I was in this room. I was speaking to a bunch of adults, American adults, trying to convince them that boys can't go in the women's, that, that little boys can't go in the women's room. And that it's not, and that's not right. And, and it's, I just, I was just really struggling for words. That no, it could cause a problem if you let 14-year-old boys in the women's, in, in, the, in the little girls' room. You know, and, and it's just hard. It's, it's hard not to get mad, but who are you going to get mad at? Who, who, is, who is at fault when the culture is like that? And, and especially a culture that was started, by and large, because of, because, of, because Christians were escaping religious persecution in Europe. Christians. Now, uh, Matthew 5.13 says that you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good then for nothing but to be thrown out and, and trampled underfoot by men. When, when I was in that, in that school board meeting, looking at the faces, angry faces, look at this guy, oh my God, who, what, wow, what a, what a, what a right, right, right-wing just bigot, intolerant. I can't believe he's, he's coming against the homosexual community like this. This is, uh, this is, this is insane. You know, these are these looks. That's what it is. It's a saltless culture. It is a culture where down is up, up, and up is down, light is dark, dark is light, lies are okay, truth is not okay. It, it, there's just no standard whatsoever. However, they can be reached. They can be reached. If you ask any one of the people in that room if there's, if there's such thing as justice, is there such thing as justice? So, for example, you could even say, is there such, why, why ought the homosexual community have specific rights? Is, it a, is there an absolute reason why the LGBT whatever community can have, should have these specific rights? Why are you passionate about that? If we're just nothing but, if we're nothing but a collection of atoms that have, that have just randomly came together, if, if, if the universe is nothing but material and, and just the cause of time and chance and an unraveling of the second law of thermodynamics and all of a sudden there's you and you're nothing but physical material and matter and your life doesn't really have any existential meaning, why? Why? you have this passion for justice that I would argue is manifest in a wrong way in this specific instance. It's not, vi- it's, it's not violating anybody's rights to say that a, uh, a, a 13-year-old boy shouldn't be in the ladies' room. It's violating rights. To, it's violating the, the rights of the 13-year-old, of the, of the little, of the, of the poor, impressionable kids in that school, all of them to take gender and just strip it and throw it into the garbage. Gender is important. Gender is a, a, a part of our human composition. Imagine a world where it didn't even matter what you were born. You could just assign yourself gender based on your feelings. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. And so I would say, yeah, I have a sense of justice too, and you have a sense of justice. But where does that ultimate sense of justice come from? It's metaphysical. They all have it. They all have it. They all can be reached. At the end of the day, everyone knows that there's such a thing as absolute moral truth. There are certain things that are wrong 
for every person, in every place, in every culture, at any time. Certain things that are absolutely wrong. There are certain things that are absolutely wrong, whether every single person on the face of the earth were miraculously convinced by a magic cloud that they were okay. There are just certain things that are morally wrong and certain things that are morally right. You don't get that from naturalism. Whatever your, your position is on evolution, you don't get that from naturalism, from, from pure chemical, uh, from, from pure materialism. You can't get that. And so, how do we appeal to those people? Those people that are just like us. Those people who are in that room stirred up over a, partif- partif- a specific topic, just perhaps on the wrong side of the issue. How do you reach out to them? How do you appeal to the standard? Do you, open the, do you open the Bible and say, here's what it says in Leviticus about homosexuality? Well, there was a day when you could. There was a day when you could. I'm going to submit to you today that those days in the United States of America are over. They're over. You can't use the Bible in the public square that way anymore. Now, God can do whatever he... God, God, God's miraculous. He, he can do anything. God can do anything. You speak out of Scripture, God can honor it. Obviously, God will honor it. But how much better would it be if we could meet them where they're at and use natural law? Use this sense of justice. Point them to God first. Demonstrate God's existence through natural law. And then move to Scripture. What if we could do that within five to ten minutes? What if we could do that with someone within five to ten minutes? What if we were all confident enough that if we were all in that meeting and we just happened to be, find ourselves alone with somebody in that meeting for ten minutes, that we felt like we could do that, that we could make a passionate case outside in, natural law from their conscience all the way to Scripture? But you got to start. You got, we have to be able to make the case. Romans 15.4 For whatever things that were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We are the people of the story. We have the right meta-narrative, the right way of looking at the world. God's word to us. Scripture, his word in the person of Jesus Christ. God even speaks through his created order too as well. The created order testifies of God's attributes and existence. Romans 1. As people of the story, how do we communicate God's story best in this world? In this age that we live in? Ezekiel, and I'm, I'm going to use this passage of, passage of Scripture. Bear with me. It's, it's long, but I think it, it draws out the situation that we're in today and, and the call that God has placed on us as a church in these days, in these days of, uh, of the bathroom bill, in these days of moral confusion, in these days of 60 million babies being murdered the, in the American abortion Holocaust. And yes, I get attacked for that. I get attacked for that. How can you? Yeah, I didn't get the memo. Apparently, only, only 
Secularists and leftists are allowed to compare anything to the Holocaust. If you're a right-wing fundamentalist Christian, not allowed to do that. You will get attacked online. So I, I thought about it for a second. Is there a way I can repackage it? And then I'm thinking about it. Six million Jews, 60 million little innocent babies. Yeah, I'm with the babies on this one. I'm sorry. So either way, how do we speak to this culture? How do we speak to them? What is our role? Ezekiel was a Jewish prophet, and he, uh, he experienced the end of the southern kingdom of Judah, where they had finally grown into an area uh, nationally where they were so far away from God that judgment finally came. And the Babylonians came in in three waves, and the way they would do it was they would choke off all resources to the city, which is what they did in 605 B.C. They'd choke off all resources. They'd starve you out. Um, Then when you were so weakened that you couldn't do anything militarily and um, starvation and disease was rampant, they would come in. And the first thing they did was they would take the nobles and they would take uh, the, the intelligentsia and anyone of value that could contribute to their culture. And they usually didn't kill them. They usually took them. They took their minds, and they put them to work in Babylonian society. And so that's what they did in 605 uh, B.C. They, they came in, they took the intelligentsia out, and they scattered them through, throughout positions in Babylonia, the ones that would submit. Um, and then they installed a vassal king uh, down to 597 B.C. Uh, that's when Ezekiel in the second wave um, of uh, Babylonian deportations was taken uh, to a region in Babylon and given custody of a, uh, a group of uh, uh, Israelites there, Judeans, that were, um, that were taken by the Babylonians by uh, the river Chebar, southwest Babylon. And as Ezekiel is sitting there, um, in this, uh, secluded by this river with, uh, in this encampment, uh, with these Judeans, uh, Ezekiel was of the priestly lineage. Um, he's receiving this call from God. What, what is his role to these people? To these people in this culture that just saw the judgment. In 586 B.C., the temple was done. It was demolished. Uh, there were millions of dead. Uh, the, uh, uh, all the, the landmarks of, of uh, Judean society were gone. The walls were crushed. And it just became a vassal state where there were farmers left to plow the land, and that's pretty much it. And all the proceeds went to the king in Babylon um, to execute and to do whatever he wanted to do with. And Ezekiel saw this with, um, uh, with, with the people over there. He saw that he, those people had seen God's judgment on a nation. They, they had seen what God had done to Judah because of Judah's unfaithfulness to their covenant responsibilities with God, had seen God's judgment firsthand, had seen it. And so he receives this call to be a watchman. And the call goes like this. Son of man, oh, we're opening up in verse, uh, uh, in verse 3, Ezekiel 3, 1 through 19, I'm sorry, verse 1. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go to speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, 
and feed your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Um, pause there. Proverbs 24, uh, 13 through 14 says that my son, eat honeycomb because it is good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste, so shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. Then he said to me, verse 4, picking back up, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. And not many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, I sent you to, if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you, because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impotent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces, and your forehead strong against their foreheads. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your foreheads. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks for their rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you, and hear with your ears. And go to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them, and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse. When the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a great thunderous voice, Blessed is the glory of the Lord from his place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another, and the noise of the wheels besides them, and a great thunderous noise. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. I went in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Then I came to the captives at Tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river Kebar. And I sat where they sat. And I remained there astonished among them for seven days. In Job 2.13, it marks Job's period before he could speak after the tragedy that it befell upon him. Seven days. It's a period of transition in Scripture. Uh, now it came to pass at the end of the seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have saved your soul. A couple parts from that passage that are really important for us. Notice, the scroll's given to Ezekiel. The word is placed inside of him, and it's sweet. Wisdom is sweet. Wisdom is, is precious. Wisdom is a treasure. Wisdom is personified in Jesus Christ, it says in Colossians. Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. Is sweet. But for Ezekiel to be a watchman, for Ezekiel to speak to this community, this destitute community, he needed to be filled with the wisdom of God. We need to be desiring God's wisdom. We need to be understanding that anything in the world that comes between us and the pursuit of the riches of God is trash. Okay, we need to equip ourselves for the task of being a watchman. 
Verse 9, like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks. That spoke to me. That spoke to me. When, when we are standing for God's truth in the public square, when we're standing for Jesus in the public square, it's easy when, you, it's easy when you're speaking in, in, a, in a setting like this where they're all warm faces. And everybody wants to come, wants to hear, wants to dialogue, wants to receive truth. And everybody's kind of in this. We're in the Judeo-Christian boat, the Christian uh, cabin in that boat. We're all uh, Protestant Christians of a certain... There's not much disagreement in this room. And, And this is easy. But it's hard when you're bringing these ideas where they're not welcome on the outside. That's what's hard. And especially today, these ideas are ridiculed from the high seats of intellectual power. They're ridiculed. Oh, you're the people of the, oh, you're the, oh yeah, that book that was written over 2,000 years ago, numerous different authors, only some of them were really written by the authors that they said they were, numerous contradictions, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, you really still believe in that? That's the attitude of what we face out there. Hardened faces. But the words that, re- that Ezekiel received, like adamant stone, like harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed by their looks. Let me tell you something. Truth is truth. Truth is truth. You don't have to go to school for 18, 19, 20 years. You don't have to hold some kind of degree If you understand how to present an argument, if you understand just this sound argument for faith, when you present truth, you let the lion out of the cage, you let it stand. Because truth belongs to God. Truth belongs to God. You don't have to be an intellectual superhero. You don't have to think that you need to prepare yourself for 30 years to be able to take on this culture. Now, there's a strategy with presenting truth. You never want to be arrogant to the point where you feel like just because you're presenting truth that you have to, in turn, know everything. Because if you receive something back from the skeptic, from the, from the, from the secular humanist, uh, from someone of a different uh, faith persuasion, from an atheist, whatever, if you receive something back and you don't respond to it correctly because you feel like you have to speak on everything, if you speak out of ignorance, you've just disqualified that truth. Now, according to the laws of, of, of logic and reason, that's a logical fallacy. You, 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 just because I, I, I might tell a lie a minute from now, that doesn't mean everything I said uh, right now isn't correct. If it's correct, it's correct. If it's false, it's false. Truth needs to be able to stand on its own. But we are are responsible for our presentation of the truth. But be encouraged. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. He has prepared you for this culture. You're here for a reason. And when, when you speak God's truth into the culture, it's like that, it's 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 salt, it's light. It flavors, it brightens. People who are in the darkness, who, who are uh, living an unsalty life, who are just trying to get by and agree with everything and stand for nothing, they're not going to like you. Are you going uh, to measure your success by a smile on their face? Are you going to compromise your message? 
Are you not going to speak? Are you going to give it to them in a way they can understand it that's a little softer? Or are you going to speak the truth in love? Are you going to find a way? Are you going to allow the Spirit to lead you? And, and you're going to say, look, the test of it's this. Really, what is God's truth in this situation and how can I best present it? Are we going to, are we going to stand up as watchmen in that situation and speak that way? Next, the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Ezekiel was in the bitterness of his spirit. I believe there's two reasons for that. One, obviously, there's a weight on this call. There's a, it's, a, it's a weighty thing. You gotta, I got to go out. I got to present. I got I to gotta talk to these people who aren't going to listen. They, they saw everything that went on in, in Judea. Now they just want to live their lives in Babylon. I'm responsible for teaching them about faithfulness to God here. They're not going to want to hear it. I just want to go do X, Y, Z. And the other thing is, he was bitter because he identified with his people and identified with where they're at, and it just pained him. We have got this idea of culture that is just evil. That there's, there's those people out there, there's us people in here, there's this wall of divide, there's this wall of separation, and we're not really supposed to engage. We, we're not really supposed to know what's going on. We don't have a heart to transform often. We don't have a heart to go out into those places where there are no Christians, where there are no people who accept the Judeo-Christian worldview and be a light, and present ourselves. It's harder. But Ezekiel had this passion for that. He, 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 he identified with those people. He wept for them for seven days. He wept in their situation. Do we have that same passion for American culture? Do we have that same passion Do we, that will be driven to learn, that will be driven to equip ourselves and finally, his call as a watchman. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. The word made translated is given. God gave Ezekiel as a watchman. God's prophets and ministers are his gifts, Ephesians 4.11. A watchman is one who looks out or views from a height with the object specifically of warning. The Hebrew in that is zaphah. There's several references in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah 6.17. Now, Zaphah is, is, com, is compared with Shamar, which is to view with the object of guarding. So there's two offices that a watchman has. One is to look out into the culture, into the world, to see the threats, to identify them, and to warn of them. And the other is to guard the people of God, to guard the flock. Shamar. Those are the two offices that are, those are the two aspect, aspects really of the, of the complete pastoral ministry. To protect the flock from outside threats and to nurture the flock from within. And, and being a watchman, being a watchman means understanding the signs of the times, understanding history. Now, see, we have as 
as, as a, coming from the Judeo-Christian heritage, coming, being a person of the book, we have an innate um, uh, respect for history. We learn from history. We see history in a way that we want to look at it and then see what we can do better. Now, that might seem like it's common sense. But the, to the progressive, to the secularist, in most instances, they don't look at history like that. They look at history as everything before was kind of arcane and everything starts today. Everything starts today. We can build utopia now. Okay? So we have a huge advantage because intuitively everyone knows you're supposed to look at history and you're supposed to learn from history. We're supposed to give them warning. The Hebrew there is zuhar. When I say warn the wicked... Zuhar, give signal by a beacon or other fire. This occurs 14 times in Ezekiel in connection with the prophet's or pastor's care. So we warn each other. We warn the flock. But we also warn the culture. Look, if somebody doesn't know Jesus and the judgment comes, they're, they're, they, they've, they've passed into the second death already. They're not going to be probably scolded again before it happens. They're living separate from God. But if that person passed by us numerous times or even a couple times or maybe one time during God's appointed kairos for us and them, his special time, for us to reach them, and we say nothing to the wicked? Then what? Who is going who, to hold responsibility for that? We are. So we are a voice to the culture. This is a war. This is a war. To use the example of what we're dealing with here in terms of, in terms of battle, look, this is, how, this, is how, this is how deep this war is. This war of ideas. We're dealing with a mind frame. We're dealing with a paradigm. We're dealing with a way of looking at the world with a worldview that says a baby human being, if it's not born, is not human. You know how dangerous that is? And this worldview is prevalent in the highest seats of power. It's a war. And we must give them warning. We must give them warning. The people with the truth must give them the warning. We didn't always used to have this back seat in the intellectual community as Christians. From the arrival of the pilgrims to the mid-19th century, American believers had prized the intellectual life. Puritan literacy rates for men... 14-year-old 14 year boy, I'm sorry, for 14-year-old Puritans were 96%, it was said. Scholars like Jonathan Edwards were activists who, who were scholarly in a variety of different disciplines and arts. And the minister was always not just the spiritual leader of the community, but the academic leader of the community too as well. The anti-intellectualism that we see in the American church today is largely a result, uh, an under, unintended, unintended result of the Second Great Awakening. Now, the Second Great Awakening was a great 
magnificent transformative experience for uh, 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 spirituality in the United States. Souls by the millions were one. But one unintended consequence was the emphasis wasn't on a reasoned conversion. It wasn't a presentation. It wasn't a systematic presentation of the gospel, a contemplative period. You entered into discipleship. It was a serious decision. Baptism had to be verified by somebody else in fellowship, preferably an elder in the church that could verify, yes, this person does um, have a heart to, to follow after Jesus and knows what he's talking about when he's dunked in the water or she's dunked in the water. Um, it was this, this second great awakening, it, and it happened from 1800 to about eight, from 1800 to 1858. The second great awakening was marked by these huge tent meetings, and it was come to Jesus and get saved and hallelujah and go out there and affect the world for Jesus. And personal experience of, of conversion and emotions were, were highly prized. But the intellect took a backseat. And preachers that could get up and whip people up into a frenzy and get people excited about Jesus and get people to come up to the pulpit and get decisions for Christ one after another, those really replaced the intellectuals like Jonathan Edwards in the First Great Awakening. Now, this is not to say, I mean, when you, whenever you make a broad generalization like this, the tendency is, okay, well, Second Great Awakening, bad. No, this is a, the Second Great Awakening had huge, I mean, we can, we can rationally say that, the, uh, uh, that slavery ended because of the Second Great Awakening. So wonderful things ha- had happened because of this. This is a, we look, we live in a fallen world. The church is full of human beings, human beings that are fallen, sometimes the worst of the worst obviously find their way to God because you realize how bad that you are. This was an unintended shortfall of the Second Great Awakening. We lost the love for the intellectual life in the church. And that, that, came, part, that came right at the same time in the mid-1800s as several key challenges. And it's worth saying, too, that um, in the, uh, the burned-over district in New York where several of these uh, untaught converts were produced by these mass tent meetings. Uh, 1930, that's where Mormonism started. You have, look, you have a whole bunch of people that come to Christ and they don't understand really what their faith is about and they're not really taught and they're not really educated. Uh, a lot of ideas can spread up and, and, and a lot of them are harmful. Not, uh, ideas have consequences. Mormonism in 1830 came from something called the Burned Over District in New York State. It was called Burned Over because they had revival after revival after revival. So you had Mormonism in 1830, and then uh, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses started there in 1884. Um, direct result of uh, intellectual pollution from these uh, just mass, come to Christ, Costco kind of conversions. Ah, oh, you're a Christian now. Get out there. So um, that, that really uh, didn't do us good in that area. Now, there are three specific challenges that were also rising at this specific time. Um, we were, not, we were not able to meet them. First of all, the philosophy of David Hume and Immanuel Kant became very prevalent in the mid-1800s. David Hume was a skeptic who attacked the traditional theistic arguments for the existence of God as they were presented at the time. And during this four-week series, we're going to bolster those arguments a little bit. Um, but So he attacked them. He came with attacks on them, and there were, most, there were, there were mostly attacks based on, look, if I can't see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, it's a five-sense approach. If you can't measure it, if you can't quantify it physically, 
then you, then you can't prove it, regardless of what logic says. That was David Hume's approach. And then Immanuel Kant, who, who, um, uh, who, who followed uh, the same line of thinking with David Hume and took the five senses argument against God to a higher level. And the way that he did it, look, let me refute it right now for you. The theory that says that only that which you can empirically verify or that which you can verify with your five senses, that theory itself cannot be verified by the five senses. It's a theory. It it doesn't pass the law of non-contradiction. It falls apart on its own merit. We needed someone in the mid-1800s that could say that and, and 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 had the seat to do so. Okay? The theory that all that you can, all that exists is material, that all you can verify is material, that, ma- that the material world all there is, is all there is, is itself an immaterial theory. It is an immaterial proposition. So therefore, it doesn't exist. Therefore, it itself holds no value. So anyway, that was the first one, the philosophy of David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Second one is a German higher criticism called biblical reliability into question. Uh, the German higher critics in the mid-1800s uh, were successfully able to launch a series of, ta- of attacks on the, uh, on the m- mostly, mostly on what we would know today as the inerrancy of Scripture. Not the inspiration of Scripture, but the inerrancy of Scripture. And when you say that inerrancy means that every single book in the Bible, for example, that the Torah, every word in the Torah had to have been specifically written by Moses. Okay, can you prove that? If you can't prove that, inerrancy's gone. So if you, if you, if you, t- if you take inerrancy to that ridiculous standard, um, then you have some problems. They weren't able to do anything with, uh, with inspiration. Theonustus, when Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed, but they didn't really have to. Because the intellectual climate at, at, during the evangelical, uh, or the fundamentalist Christians at the day, wasn't able to rise to meet the challenges of German higher criticism. And so therefore, um, the Bible in the public square began to be viewed as an arcane, older book that didn't have the solutions needed to uh, guide society. And then lastly, Darwinian evolution made the world safe for atheists. And... Wherever, whatever your position is on evolution, I think it's ridiculous. Whatever your position is on evolution, be very careful when you're talking to an evolutionist. Make them define their terms. Evolution itself, first of all, there's macroevolution and there's microevolution. Okay, there's several types of microevolution, and then there's macroevolution. Macroevolution is one species becomes another species. Okay, uh, or a... Um, uh, a whale becomes a horse over time. Okay, that is macroevolution. All right, um, and microevolution is a, is a variation between kinds. Okay, so a fly might develop a thicker wing, wing uh, when it gets windier in a certain region or whatever. That is a micro That's microevolution. But make them define that they're speaking about evolution and not naturalism. Naturalism is the theory that the material world is all that exists and that organisms can self-create and that life self-created and that there's no intelligent designer. Don't let them get away with saying, oh, you don't believe in evolution? 
And you say, no, okay, well then they snuck naturalism in through the back door with evolution. Don't let, the, don't let evolution be that Trojan horse. It, it's big. Make them... Because, there, look, there, there have been a lot of theistic evolutionists. C.S. Lewis, if you know who C.S. Lewis is, is a theistic evolutionist. I would submit to you that the evidence shows that if you believe in, in macroevolution, that one species can become another species, that if you take that leap, it would cause more creative input. It would take more intelligence to make one species into another species than it would take for a creator to make two separate species. That's where the scientific evidence points. And so make them say, okay, so you believe in unguided naturalistic evolution. Unguided naturalistic evolution of the macro and I, I, micro and I assume the macro variety. Unguided naturalistic evolution. It's really important to make them define that. Because then you can say, yeah, no, I don't believe in that. I, don't be I, I do not believe in naturalistic evolution at all. And make the idea, and, and fight that battle there rather than the battle of evolution, okay? Because evolution becomes that catch-all. Anyway, um, so Darwinian evolution made the world safe for atheists. Wouldn't it be a nice if at the time that the theory of evolution was coming out and that it was making its way into the ivory towers, that we had an army of, of believers that were equipped to be able to defend against it? that didn't just separate one from another. And so, because we couldn't uh, respond with the sound, rational, potent defense, we began to withdraw from those areas in society. And you start to see in the, in the 1900s all those Christian in institutions become secularized. And all the ideas of uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview become arcane, so to speak. Here's a little timeline for that. 1925, the Scopes Monkey Trial. As a result of the failure uh, to challenge Dar uh, uh, Darwinism intellectually, um, in 1925, in the Scope Monkey Trial, we were humiliated. We were absolutely humiliated on a national forum. And though we t uh, Christian fundamentalists technically won that trial with Will Williams Jennings Bryan, it was a disaster nationally because he was humiliated by his opponent in court. 1954, Congress passes the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment... Um, uh, 501c3 of the federal tax code, from this pulpit, you are not allowed to endorse a political candidate. Not allowed to. It was in the Constitution the whole time, but it just took until 1954. Again, we were not able to engage in the public square. 1962, uh, Supreme Court rules that school prayer is unconstitutional. Happened uh, from a little prayer that was said in a Long Island public school. Here it is. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee and beg thy blessings upon us, our teachers, and our country. That's it. Unconstitutional. Completely unconstitutional. Horrible prayer, right? You can't do that. Can't say that in public school at all. 1963, Supreme Court rules Bible reading and recitation of the Lord's Prayer in school unconstitutional. The court says, a, here's, here's what the court said in the majority opinion. A law must have a secular legislative purpose and primary effect. They're getting more brazen and more brazen. Secularism, naturalism, uh, secular humanism is becoming more engraved in the seats of power as we go down. 1963, huge turning point. It's called the downward spiral of America in some circles. Check some of this out. For 15 years before 1963, pregnancies in girls ages 15 through 19 had been no more than 15,000. After 1963, pregnancies increased 187% in the next 15 years. 
as the Judeo-Christian worldview is pushed out, as prayer is pushed out of public schools, as the Lord's Prayer is pushed out. Now, I'm not, I don't think it's a direct result that, that in 1963 this happened and God said, that's it, here's the punishment. But I think that it's a reflection. It's a reflection of godlessness. What happens? There, sin has consequences. When society as a whole identifies so wholeheartedly against God, what does it identify with? And who's responsible for that? Number two, younger girls aged, ages 10 to 14, pregnancy since 1963 are up 553%. Before 1963, sexually transmitted disease among students were 400 per 100,000. Since 1963, they're up 226%. Before 1963, divorce rates had been declining for 15 years. After 1963, divorces increased 300% each year for the next 15 years. Since 1963, unmarried people living together is up 353%. Since 1963, single-parent families are up 140%. Since 1963, single-parent families and children are up 160%. Here's a good one. The educational standard for measure uh, in schools has been the SAT, they, they were steadily, steadily uh, um, on, the, on the incline. I'm sorry, SAT scores had been, had been steady for many years before 1963. From 1963 until then, they rapidly declined for 18 consecutive years, even though the same test had been used since 1941. In 1974 and 75, the rate of decline of the SAT scores decreased, even though they, de- they continued to decline. That was before they were, there was an explosion of religious private schools. Get this. There were only 1,000 Christian schools before 1965. Between 1974 and 1984, they increased to 32,000. That could have had an impact if the private schools had higher SAT scores. In checking with the SAT board, it was found that the SAT board for private schools were nearly 100%, 100 points higher than the public schools. Of the nation's top academic scholars, three times as many come from private religious schools. Why is that? Three times as many of our scholars come from private religious schools. Why is that? Since 1963, violent crime has increased 544%. Illegal drugs have become an enormous and uncontrollable problem. 1966, Time magazine asks, is God dead? Is God dead? And people have taken that article and and misused it. The article itself doesn't actually proclaim that God is dead. It asks the question. It looks at culture and asks the question, whose fault is that? 1973, Roe v. Wade, abortion decreed by by Supreme Court mandate on all 50 states. It never had, there was never such unrestricted abortion in any state before 1973. Six 60 million babies have perished as a result of that decision. Who's at fault? Who is at fault for allowing a culture to go there? 1984, Supreme Court rules nativity scenes unconstitutional. Well, who cares? All right. Um, Look, there's a lot. The signs at the times are obvious. Okay, the signs are blatant. It's right in our face. What do we do about it? What do we do? What do we do? We become apologists. We become ready. We ready ourselves with a defense. We, we make the case. We make the case in the public square. It is our weapon for putting Christ back into the culture. 
1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We love God with all our minds enough to do that. Francis A. Schaeffer said this. If you don't know who Francis Schaeffer is, look him up. Uh, he wrote an awesome book that's still widely read uh, among people like myself today. Um, it, it, it's called The Christian Manifesto. And it is a systematic presentation of the theistic worldview to an unbelieving world. This is our manifesto. This is how we affect culture. He says, true spirituality covers all reality. There are things that the Bible tells us that are absolutes which are sinful, which do not conform to the character of God. But aside from, the, but aside from these, the lordship of Christ covers all life and all of life equally. It is not only what the true spirituality covers all of life, but it covers all the spectrum of life equally. In this sense, there is nothing concerning reality that is not spiritual. There is no sacred and spiritual. There is nothing that you as a Christian, that I as a Christian am not supposed to be affecting for Jesus. There is no part that is out of bounds in this culture. For the rest of our time here, for the next three weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to identify our enemy. Okay, the enemy isn't people. It is an ideology. It is a stronghold. It is a way of thinking that ensnares people. We're going to identify the main enemy, secular humanism. We're going to identify it. We're going to talk about establishing absolute truth. So next week we're going to do absolute truth, absolute morality, and freedom. And how you cannot be free without moral absolutes. Week three we're going to talk about external evidence for Christianity. Outside of the Bible, we're going to lift up the main theistic arguments, the cosmological, teleological. Uh, we're going to reinforce the moral law argument. We're going to talk about the ontological argument for the existence of God and give a couple nuggets on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, proving it from outside of the Bible. And then finally, in week four, our final week together, we're going to talk about the evidence from inside here. And we're going to mostly use fulfilled prophecy. I'm going to show you how to, how, to, how to take Old Testament prophecy, how to date it. And we're going to use, here's my thing, we use the skeptics' dates. We use the most liberal dates for the books in the Old Testament. We concede that we, we act like we're speaking to a liberal scholar. We, use the, we concede the liberal date. We give them the date that it's, that, that's supposed to, for example, Daniel. We'll, get, we'll give Daniel the traditional uh, 5th century B.C. date. Yeah, obviously. But they want to put it in the 2nd century BC. Okay, fine. We'll go from there and see what we can still do with the 70 weeks prophecy. Okay? Yeah. And, and so at the end of that, hopefully, look, it's just getting our feet wet, but hopefully we'll, we'll have the confidence at least that, hey, there is a way to take these idea into the, ideas into the public square. There is a way to be equipped so that we can go out there and we can have an effect for Christ in the culture John 14, 6, and I'll close with this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are we going to be people of truth? Are we going to prepare ourselves? Are we going to let the culture define truth? Are we going to let relativism 
and all of its violations of knowledge and reason and logic, are we going to let that be the last word to this society as it passes away under crushing debt and moral depravity? Or are we going to speak a word to our people in our nation that, yes, there is an absolute truth, there is an absolute morality, there is an absolute code of justice. Love is all, sacrificial love is always better than hate. Sacrificial love, 100% of the time, is always great. Hating your neighbor is always wrong, no matter what. Are we going to hold up that standard of truth and be ready to defend it as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for letting me share with you. Appreciate you.